And now for a word from our sponsors. Are you fed up with hearing about the modern data stack only to realize that what it really means is buy these half dozen expensive tools and install them all just to get the data you need? You need right data. We combine the tools you need to turn raw data into trusted data for your business users, all in a single, modular, no-code platform. Easily do batch or streaming ingest, transform data, and build and orchestrate pipelines in our Data Factory Data Engineering module. The tools essential to delivering high-quality, reliable data through data observability, profiling, and ML-powered business rule generation are all in our Data Trust module. And to make it easy for users to find and take action on all that trusted data. Data Market is the next-gen catalog that makes it easy for users to find data products, to request access, and to start using the data through APIs, connectors, or even generative AI-powered data analytics. Get a free trial and learn why companies like Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, and General Electric chose right data for their data teams and how you can cut your data stack costs by 50% at GetRightData.com. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mont. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by my company, Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. This is going to be a panel because while I clearly am not shy about talking, I want to give others in the community a voice too. It definitely shouldn't only come from me. We should be hearing from many different people doing this. If you want to participate in a panel, please do get in touch. You can go to datameshunderstanding.com to see some of the other free community-friendly programs and the other learning resources we have. And you can check out our actually quite reasonably priced offerings. So let's hear some fun music and then jump into a quickish summary of what you'll hear about in this panel. Episode 263, Panel, Applying Site Reliability Engineering Practices to Data. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? So guest host Emily Gorsinski, who's the head of Data and AI for ThoughtWorks Europe, as well as guest of Episode 72, facilitated a discussion with Amy Toby, Senior Principal Engineer at Equinix, and Alex Hidalgo, Principal Reliability Advocate at Noble9. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. The topic for this panel was applying reliability engineering practices to data. This is different from engineering for data reliability, which is focused specifically on data quality. The overall concept is taking what we've learned from reliability engineering across disciplines, but mostly in software, especially SRE or site reliability engineering, and bringing those learnings to data to make data, especially data production and serving, 
more reliable and scalable. Personal note, this is probably one of the most frustrating topics in data for me because it feels like it's basic foundational work, yet most organizations aren't tackling this well yet, if at all, really. The best starting point for an organization is simple awareness and starting to have reliability and engineering conversations around data. And you will probably feel like you're behind after listening to this. Everyone is behind on this. Even most orgs aren't doing SRE well. So applying these concepts to data, it's no surprise that people are kind of feeling like that. And I've got my takeaways. And as per usual, I'm just reflecting my own views as after listening rather than anything specifically of the, the panelists. So my top eight takeaways. Number one, reliability engineering is one of the majorly overlooked aspects of what we need to bring to data, whether you're talking about data mesh or not. People are starting to really move on product thinking and to a lesser degree, bringing microservices and CICD approaches to data. But reliability engineering is a somewhat distant afterthought, if at all, for many organizations. Number two, At the end of the day, reliability engineering comes down to observability first. If you can't observe what's happening with your systems, you can't really start to identify issues and work on fixes. Number three, observability in data cannot only be about the data quality. That is observing what is happening with the data versus the data application systems pipelines, you know, what's actually producing the data. The data itself may seem fine, you know, no quality issues, but if your system's storing, moving, transforming, your data are degrading, you are missing the forest for the trees. A broken pipe that delivers 5% of the water, but it's still clean, is still broken, even if the water passes quality checks. Number four, relatedly and, and somewhat in contrast, The measures used in operational systems reliability engineering, like availability and latency, are potentially the wrong areas to focus on for reliability engineering in data. Don't copy-paste these approaches, these metrics, from software. Think about what matters when it comes to the data applications or systems, as well as the actual information you are sharing. Number five, as Amy mentioned, there is too much binary thinking about data, whether it is about quality, reliability, availability, etc. The idea of criticality is often missing from data discussions and trying to measure who will scream, you know, trying to measure this by who screams the loudest is a really poor approach, right? As an overall organization, we need to map what data is critical and why. Number six, The best way to find out your SLOs for data-related work is to have conversations. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Not all needs are created equal. Don't take consumers at their first word. Dig in and find out what will serve their needs, but limit the work to something reasonable. Remember that return on investment is what matters, not simply return. Most data work has value but does the value justify the costs? Number seven, keep things simple. As Alex said, focus on, quote, is this doing what my users need it to do? Look to measure around what your systems need to do to serve customer needs. It's very easy to get caught up in measuring the wrong things. 
Finally, currently in many organizations, reliability engineering work is much more like archaeology than engineering, as Emily had noted. We need to focus on providing the context to those trying to ensure reliability, and that takes forethought on the systems architecture side as well as the organizational side. Observability, data or otherwise, isn't a switch you can easily flip. It's a practice you build and get better at over time. So start and work towards getting better. Okay, with that summary of my top takeaways, and you can see the show notes for more takeaways if you'd like, but let's go ahead and actually hear from our awesome panelists themselves. there. So my name is Emily Gorsunsky, and I'm here with my wonderful friends and colleagues, Alex and Amy, to talk about data reliability engineering. Uh, this is an, a really exciting topic for me uh, because it combines two of the things that I love, which is data and also making systems better. Um, but before we get into the topic, maybe I will allow you two to introduce yourselves. So we'll start with you, Amy. All right. Hi, I'm Amy Toby. I am Senior Principal Engineer at Equinix, where I work on digital interconnection products. And I still wear this hat of SRE everywhere I go. Um, so I'm still kind of doing reliability engineering every day, even while I kind of help some teams launch a new product. Thank you. And Alex? Yeah, um, my name is Alex Hidalgo. Um, I'm currently the Principal Reliability Advocate at Noble9. Um, however, like Amy, I still consider myself an SRE through and through. Uh, I don't think that'll ever really leave me, no matter what my title is. Um, keeping things reliable and and helping others do that better is truly my real passion. And um, you know, it's a it's a it's a thing that I think is so much more applicable across not just the industry but various different industries. And um, I love having these conversations, not just about like can we keep a website running, right? Is this API responsive? Uh, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about that. I really love taking these ideas and figuring out how we can spread them further. And I'm Emily Gorsunsky, as I mentioned. I am the head of data and AI for ThoughtWorks Europe. I'm one of our data mesh practice leads and have been working on how to make data systems better, more usable, and more reliable for the last couple of years. Of course, when I'm talking about data systems, I'm referring to things like business intelligence systems, so reporting and dashboards as well as pipelines and streaming platforms. And of course, uh, our favorite topic, AI and machine learning systems. So I guess maybe I'll, I'll start this with a little bit of framing. When the data mesh concept was developed, now it was about four or five years ago. The sort of central question, uh, this is a bit of a simplification, but the central question was, why are we not bringing microservices mindset? Why are we not bringing product mindset? Why are not we not bringing reliability mindset to the data space like we have brought it to the software development and to the operations space over the last several years? And so the whole idea of data mesh 
data mesh sort of flowed from this idea of what would it look like, what would it entail if we were to bring these ideas into the data landscape rather than what we were doing, which is kind of like, let's put the data people at the end of the chain. Let's just sort of centralize them. Let's put them, you know, uh, far away from the business value things and and treat them sort of like a very uh, advanced help desk, right? Can you pull me this data? Can you pull me this insight? Things have started to change with data mesh. We've gone to a more product-oriented way of doing things. We've um, built up some new theory. But one of the things that I still think is missing is where do we get SRE thinking into the data landscape? So my first question over to you all is, what are the opportunities you see to bring SRE thinking into the data ecosystems? Oh boy, howdy. <laughs> yeah, I start, I like to start with the small question. I guess, I guess the, the way I start talking to people about it in, in my work is I start with talking about data, data criticality because usually when we're talking about reliability, people are like, well, the data's there or it isn't. It's binary. And it's very, very much not when you have a lot of experience in this space. And so I think about it like instead of mission critical, like we talk about web services and requests being served, is it is a service data critical is the first thing that I take people thinking through so that they start thinking about like from the data perspective, how critical is this to my business and my business operations? And then it kind of flips things on its head. From, from like what the typical response where if we come in with the SRE approach, be like, well, what's your SLOs? And they go like, well, I have data and I process the data. And then I emit some results, but that leaves out like this whole wealth of stuff that should be wrapped up in all of these practices like SLOs and things. We have to get there first. Yeah, I mean, data is very interesting because there are so many different things that you really need to be able to measure to understand whether or not your data and your data applications, right? Like those are kind of separate things, right? Is, is, is your data itself what it's supposed to be and, and how you're able to talk to that data or, or analyze that data? Is that correct? You know, and, and I always fall back on my personal definition of reliability is, is this doing what it's supposed to be doing? And you can apply that to both data and data applications, right? Like, is the data correct? Is it fresh? Is it right? Is it the data it's supposed to be? That's, that's a way that data can be reliable. And then, you know, similarly, data applications, the things that let you talk to that data, are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? But I do think it's 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 very interesting that with these sorts of systems, there are so many additional things that you need to consider that very often for like a web API, right? Like you really can basically get by with error rates and latency, right? Like is this thing up and and is it responding fast enough? And, and you know, uh, that's, I don't love oversimplifying it. Well, you do it, right, Alex, by, by, treating the data like a hot potato. The web service gets the data and it goes, whoop, and pass it on to the next system, like Kafka queue or something, like just, no, hot potato. Right, but then are people looking at that data and saying, well, is this what it's supposed to be? Is it in the right format? Did Are we sure not a single bit got flipped somewhere, right? You know, uh, there's just so many different aspects. You know, when, when I was writing the SLO book, there's a reason I didn't write the data reliability chapter. Because it's it's a specialized field, right? So uh, Polina Jural and uh, Blake Bissett wrote that. And, uh, you know, because it just made sense. Got to hand that off to experts because it's a different way of thinking about things. Yeah, there, there are so many sort of nuances to it, right? There's, I, I still get into a lot of um, the discussions, let's say, with clients and with other folks in the industry about what are the right SLOs and SLAs. Uh, to use for data systems. And, and for one, maybe Alex, I'll have you explain a little bit briefly uh, the difference between an SLA and an SLO for the folks who are not as familiar with the terminology. 
Um, but I still get into these discussions about things like, do we need a single source of truth or do we need contextual sources of truth or, you know, how do we even define that stuff? Right. And, you know, if, if you're looking at something like a sales, uh, report that you need to, to send out for, uh, contractual purposes to your vendors or to your suppliers or something like that, that's a very different quality and accuracy, uh, requirement than if you need a stream that's, that's sort of populating a trending, uh, a trending object or, you know, article, uh, algorithm that you're putting in your web shop, right? You don't care if that's inaccurate sometimes. Um, if, if there's a, you know, one thing gets missed, you can do all the finding out without consequences. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you screw up that sales report, there could be legal consequences. Right. The, the sort of washing out in the statistical noise is fine for some things and not fine for other things. Um, and so I think that that's a really big challenge is trying to, to get people thinking, uh, about what is the actual value of what we're doing with this data. Um, you know, I think I, I still get in this, this, I hear from people that are like, I need this system up 24 seven, a hundred percent of the time. And I'm like, you got five data analysts and they all work eight to five. You don't need 24 seven uptime. But then for other systems you do, you know, like, or, or, or got to get as close as possible. You know, when I worked at uh, AdMeld, right, a real-time bidding platform, you know, like our entire business was processing logs because those logs represented revenue for both the bidding side and the advertiser side. And, you know, and uh, uh, losing those log lines was a pretty big deal, you know? So it, it's so contextual and 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 really matters. Uh, uh, but, you know, like that goes back to good conversations, right? Like, what do we need here? Do we actually need to aim for a very high percentage of of you know availability and 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 throughput or yeah like as you mentioned sometimes it doesn't matter right if it's a stream on YouTube and it glitches out a little bit like no one cares you know it's fine hey, Alex are you setting yourself up to do the SLO bit about how SLOs help people get through those conversations <laughs> I mean that's kind of what I'm always doing right but uh-huh. um, <laughs> well look like as 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 Emily mentioned it might be worth actually defining some of these things a little bit right uh, most people are probably familiar with SLAs uh, service level agreements. Um, and that's just generally a contractual obligation for the performance of a system, right? And and these go all the way back to 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 telcos in the '60s. Like started using the term. Um, I've actually found uh, a job listing for a punch card machine operator uh, in the '20s that used the term <laughs> service level agreement. Um, so you know, like it's 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 a concept that people have been using a long time. But SLOs are a newer um, approach to using similar concepts, right? So like an SLA is generally not set at 100% because part of the idea is systems will degrade, systems will fail. We understand that. So we're just going to give you the right amount of service, whatever that might look like for you and 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 your business. And SLOs take that same concept, but kind of operationalizes it. So whereas an SLA is is a contractual obligation, often with some kind of financial thing uh, uh, tied to it, right? Like maybe we owe you money, or or you can cancel your contract with us if we if we if we break these agreements. Uh, an SLO is just a more fungible way for teams and and organizations to kind of look at how have we performed over time, right? So you may set an SLO. Uh, um, I want my website to be available to people ninety nine point nine percent of the time, and if you're not hitting that, that now gives you data. To say, okay, maybe we need to change something. Maybe we need to take action here. Um, 
So they're very similar in terms of uh, how they measure things, but they're also very different because uh, SLAs really exist for lawyers and financial departments, and SLOs exist for engineers actually trying to keep things reliable. Yeah, thanks. And I think that's what's interesting is because so many times data teams are really internally faced, uh, internally facing. So SLAs in this concept, in this context, I mean, yes, you can, and I do see uh, businesses that actually have formal agreements between uh, teams or departments, and and you can write an SLA there. But for a lot of situations, it doesn't really make sense, right? Um, it more makes sense, like, what is, how are the engineers interacting with each other? Who needs this data? Who needs this insight? Who needs this, um, you know, uh, this data to be fresh? And why do they need it to be fresh? Uh, like, what are they trying to actually do with it? That adds, that adds value to the company. And so how can you actually measure um, how much money you should be putting into engineering those data systems right? uh, to be more reliable? And that's how I was trying to set Alex up for, right, is the SLO discussion from the SRE perspective is is how we we start to draw out those those things, right? Because Emily, if I've had this conversation with you, you probably have all of these concerns at the top of your mind. But a lot of the data folks I've worked with over the years, I start asking these questions like, how fresh does it have to be? What are your customers asking of you? What is the user journey that people consuming your data go through? And then all of a sudden, it starts to, they start to, the light bulbs come on, which is my favorite thing in the world. And they start go, oh, I actually don't have to do this every day. Yeah, you, you actually don't. Like you can do it. You can start to reduce your processing uh, frequency and things like that. And and that's what I love about the SLO discussion it, across any of these concerns from data to web services. But I think especially in data, like we have to come at it a little bit differently because the the hot potato I mentioned earlier is in a lot of microservices, we don't hold any state when we avoid it like the plague it is. Um, but at the end of the day, it all goes somewhere and it all ends up on a disk somewhere, usually on many disks. Um, and so we have additional questions that we have to ask and say, okay, so what are our durability guarantees? What happens if we lose you know, all of the disks in this quorum group and we lose that chunk of data? But what are the consequences to the business? And th- then that starts to drive the investment discussion forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I love you mentioning, you know, like things like you know, like freshness, but also like data integrity and data durability and data availability, right? Like famously, I love that 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 both uh, S3 and GCS, uh, they both promised 13 nines of... Are they up to 13 now? Yeah, 13. Uh, I believe maybe it's 11. I could be off. But either way, a ridiculous string of nines. But all they're actually promising is that your data exists somewhere, Right? They're not actually promising that you're able to access it. They're not actually promising that it'll be available to you when you need it. You know, um, but that's just you know like uh, like a fun example of the many different ways you have to think about reliable data and reliable data systems. There's just many, many, many different factors at play. And I think one of the other interesting things is that it the challenge of data is it data has always represented sort of a two sided challenge. In the SRE space, we're often talking about the the systems availability. Um, you have to have low error rates, you have, to have high availability, low latency, all of those things. In the data space, it's almost like you could have very good systems reliability, and if that's what you build your SLOs around, you can be going completely down the wrong path because 
sure, I'll give you very high availability. I'll just drop all the tables, right? I'll just have empty tables sitting in the data warehouse. And every query you throw at it, every ping that your monitoring system throws at that system is going to come back quickly and it's going to come back um, available. Uh, but it's contextually going to mean nothing. And so I think that also the data quality um, becomes a part of it, right? So is it the right data? Is it the is it fit for purpose? Is it reflecting the actual uh, processes that it's it's um, uh, designed to um, designed to reflect? Right. I think that there's this. I think you, you mentioned, you know, these systems that it's like the hot potato. Like, get rid of the data as fast as you can. Just put it in the queue. I like to. Um, I, I don't know what language I, I can use on this podcast, but I like to describe it as like bucket. Put it in the bucket model, right? Like just get the data out of the system and into S3 or into your storage. Um, and then let somebody else figure it out. Now the, the somebody else, those are people like me. Those are the data engineers who are then looking at this going, what is all of this? So my question, how do we actually bring like that stakeholder perspective, like t- treating the data engineers as stakeholders to bring their perspective back onto these systems so that they can actually start to influence the reliability of say microservices beyond the systems reliability perspective and think about it in terms of the data reliability perspective. I think the main challenge there is what I call natural boundaries. What a lot of people perceive in these data pipelines is, as you said, you put it in the bucket and you forget about it. It's not your, it's somebody else's problem now. But what that also represents organizationally, and this is often how we get stuck in the same situation at every place we ever work, is is it represents a handing off a natural boundary in the organization where, oh, I can form another team that receives the data, and then I can form another team that processes the data. And so we always get these same plays out of organizations that that create that, because the divide is natural. It's like a river going through a city, right? The city on one side is very different character from the city on the other side. So what we're, we're to- so to bring people closer to that context, you have to actually first address that natural boundary and, and make a decision as an organization. Like, am I going to figure out how to build bridges across this boundary so that the, that context can flow? Because by design, it's not supposed to. That was the goal. You know, and that's, that's something I love about data mesh as a philosophy, right? Is getting the right people to understand and know their data right? Like uh, uh, instead of throwing everything at a centralized team, which then creates these barriers that, you know, like Amy, uh, uh, you know, like mentioned, you know, let's make sure that everyone understands their own data and, and is able to better measure it and, and, and have a better idea of what's actually happening. Yeah. And I think it, it's that idea of like giving the, the responsibility, but the, also the ownership and the attributability um, to the value of that data to those teams, I think is, is, a really valuable and powerful idea that, um, unfortunately, a lot of organizations have sort of built themselves in such a way, as you said, Amy, by design. It's like not designed to do that. The data folks are sitting, they're not sitting in the IT organization a lot of times. They're sitting in a different organization. They're, they're, they have different stakeholders. A lot of people think of data as like an extension, as like the technology extension of the finance team or the marketing team, not of a technology team. And so we even see like, the data stack on a completely different cloud um, from the the application stack, and of course, you, you know, you raise the point like, well, do you know how much you're paying in order to move this data across? Just pure data transfer costs, and a lot of times people say no. Uh, we don't 
we don't know how much that is. Um, is there is there a space to like bring better cloud principles into the data landscape, or or is like where does this problem need to get addressed first and foremost? Like, this isn't just an application thing; it's not just a data thing. It's it's more uh, systematic than that. Uh, no, like I was just saying, like every system has users, right? And because a system exists to uh, provide some kind of tasks, uh, uh, do something for those users. And, you know, I think that's why it's important for everyone to frame things as, is this doing what my users need it to do? And user doesn't have to be customer. It could be team down the hall, team on the other side of the planet. It could be another system. It doesn't even have to be a human, you know, but whatever it is, you got to frame your thinking. Is it doing what the users need it to do? Uh, uh, Otherwise, you're just not going to measure the right things. You're not going to understand uh, the right aspects of your systems. Well, I think, Emily, can you say your question again? Because I, I wanted to address a particular part of it. Because you said something about ingress, and we're in the state where it's hard to share the data because there's an economic barrier to it, which is that the clouds have grown up where they make a huge chunk of their revenue on egress charges, right? It's the, it's the Roach Motel model. It's you can check in, but you can't check out or cost extra to check out. Um, so, so like that, that creates some of these silos of data and, and removes opportunities to do processing with best in class tools, which is by design. They don't want you to use best in class because they have this huge suite of services, most of which are like middle of class. And that, this applies to any of the clouds, right? So that's all they really ever aim for is let's have a middle-ish kind of product that covers most of the bases because we want people to buy into our ecosystem and be totally in, in our ecosystem. And so like if they're going over to like Bigtable from Amazon, you got to pay us for that. And you're going to get kit on both sides, actually. And so like that creates an engineering constraint for us. It, and it's kind of a hard one to move, right? Like that they're, those clouds are not going to give up on egress charges. That's not happening. Yeah, they, it, absolutely that. I mean, it's it's something that you need to bring, I think, in, into that uh, design phase when you're looking at um, re-architecting your cloud, uh, your cloud ar architecture, when you're looking at um, sort of a, a transformation or a reorg. Uh, I do think that you need to not have data at the end of this chain and say, we'll let, them let those smart data people figure it out. But I'm a, I'm biased, right? I'm a, I'm a data person. Maybe there's something on the on the flip side, and I think that uh, in the sort of pre-chat to this, we were talking about um, how many times have you gone to like an analytics organization and said like, "Show me your runbook," and they don't have one, and they don't really know, you know, what you're what you're referring to, or they don't really think through this sort of um, operational engineering excellence sort of lens. They think through a different lens. Is it are like is the data space just lost like are we just lost uh, a lost cause in, in terms of designing good reliable systems yes i don't know i've seen i've seen teams do this you know like i really have like i've sat next to teams that have figured out how they have to reframe their thinking um you know i worked with uh, an excellent engineer at squarespace actually uh plina Geralt, who helped write the data reliability chapter right and uh like i was told her that she was an honorary sre uh, she would reject this because she thinks of herself as a data person or yeah, like she did at least. Uh, but I was like, no, no, I'm sorry. I see what you're doing here. I see how much you care about 
the pipelines that you're responsible for and the data you know, like that you're responsible for and ensuring that it's 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 accurate, uh, ensuring it's integral, uh, ensuring it's timely, and you're doing SRE work. So you're an SRE to me, whether or not <laughs> you want to think about it, you know, which is all just to say, like, I don't think it's necessarily a hard loss cause as you know like i think amy was kind of kidding when she said that but you know like it's it's a sorry i wasn't kidding at all because i think what you're fighting you're fighting conway's law right is is what emily pointed out is that there are organizational barriers and what you're pointing out alex is that there are exceptions to the rule but the vast majority of folks out there working in the data space are in organizations where they're hanging off far away from revenue usually underfunded they're disempowered um, often get work that comes in in a queue, they do the work, they return it back. They don't have much connection to the real stuff that generates both their data or their requests, right? And so businesses love this, by the way. Businesses want these little islands of of disempowered people to own and do all this work and treat them like this little fungible unit they can just swap out, right? Like like Wes's engineers with computers, well, like with just your fungible computer, let me throw you away. Businesses want to look at people the same way and data people aren't an exception, except that they are far away from the value that they generate, right? And that that's what creates this permanent condition or this, this constantly reproducing condition. Which is interesting. I, I don't have the report in front of me. I should have, if I wasn't on vacation last week, maybe I would have uh, done some prep work and pulled it up. But um, the last couple of years, like the industry surveys have consistently shown that the highest paid uh, technology roles are like data science, machine learning, engineering, and data engineering. And yet we have these data engineers working in these centralized and distant, as you say, disconnected from value, data engineering teams essentially acting as like a help desk. They're just taking tickets from some upstream analysts saying this field in this report looks funny. Why does it look funny? And then they have to go and they have to, I like to say it's it's more of a process of like archaeology um, than it is of, of engineering, figure out why the data is looking like that and then apply some kludge to it. And then next thing you know, you've got hundreds, if not thousands of jobs that are running on your data warehouse that nobody knows what they do or if they're load bearing or not, and nobody dares mess with them. And you've got more dashboards than employees in the company running in your BI system, refreshing nightly sometimes that you're spending a bunch of money on. And nobody's looked at it in five years. And it, by the way, it's impossible to monitor any of this stuff because none of these tools provide any sort of easy to use hooks to create that level of observability. Yeah, like, and 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 I want to be clear, I'm not disagreeing with anything being said. Like, of course, this is the actual reality of, of most organizations. I'm just personally not ready to say we need to give up and, and, and we can't solve these problems. So what would it take in your mind to solve these problems? What's the first place to start? Well, like awareness and conversations like this, right? We need more people to understand what the issues are, uh, uh, how these silos uh, end up being created and why they're suboptimal. And, you know, uh, that that doesn't solve the problem in and of itself. But, you know, like having a conversation like the one we're having, I think, has to be the starting point. What would that take for you, Amy, to, to think that us as lonely data folks are not the last cause? What would you need to see from us? Well, I think, well, it's not so much what I need to see from the data folks, right? Like what one solution that I recommend to a lot of people is, especially technologists tend to want to be like, well, I want to stay a technologist my whole life. And I never want to go into leadership and have half my brain removed. Um, and, and that attitude is why we don't have 
the people you need in leadership teams. Because ultimately, if you want to solve these problems, you need to join your company's leadership team. There's no other way. I've tried engineering 20 years. I tried bashing my face against the wall, like trying to fix organizations through technology changes, right? This platform will solve the problems and everybody will come together. Never plays out um, because ultimately it's it's a organizational problem and the technology can't help but follow the shape of the organization. And if you want to have a say in how your organization evolves, you need a seat at the leadership table. The easiest way to get that is to join the leadership team. The second, the, the really hard way is to climb the engineering ranks and then hope that you get invited to the table, which is not the default. Mm-hmm. Or yell loud enough until they get tired of hearing you. Tell you to go away? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, that's actually a technique that, that you know, and uh, God, I can actually point out individuals who would, who would you know, concur with, with, with how annoying I've been at certain parts of my career. But yeah, sometimes you have to yell and you have to repeat yourself over and over and over and over again. And sometimes that doesn't work, but it does sometimes. Sometimes eventually <laughs> someone will listen to what you've been screaming about for months or, or years and suddenly it'll click. You know, it you can bring about change. It's often slow. It's always iterative, right? It's never complete and final in, in, in one step. But, you know, if you have a good idea and you want to make things better, I think it is possible to eventually get people on board. I think I, I like to believe that. Uh, I, I'm a consultant, right? So that's part of my job is to, uh, I have to believe in that um, because that's our job, right? We get hired in order to be those people who uh, who try to catalyze that change. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think that um, sometimes you do, you do have to be willing to put your foot down and say, no, there must be a better way and we need to find it and do it. Um, and then sometimes you get lucky and, and you can prove it. Um, uh, by doing it in practice. I want to zoom in so though real quick, maybe one last thread, uh, maybe second to last thread. Um, on something you mentioned, Amy, which is that technology, like you can't technology your way out of this problem. And part of that is, as you said, it's the, the Roche Votel model. It's the rent-seeking model of data technologies in particular, which are, I would say, another level more controlling than some other uh, application domains, particularly in the cloud, right? Uh, everyone can kind of like, yes, you can still like be paying a lot for OpenShift or whatever. Um, you can be paying a lot for managed Kubernetes, but you can find a lot of ability, like you can hire people that can run Kubernetes um, easier now than it was five years ago. Data, I mean, data catalogs, data processing tools, data pipelining tools, all this stuff, so cloud native, so cloud uh, vendor specific, all the lock-in. It's just like, we're always trading one form of lock-in for another. Is there, like, what do we need to do as an industry to help get away from this? Because we know that this isn't a viable long-term model for clients and for businesses. What do we need to push towards? I didn't do a lot of research on what y'all mean by data mesh uh, before I got here. That's uh, but, but, but I th- I think in that, me just kind of guessing what it means, I think that there's probably opportunities that one, today's organizational models will fight tooth and nail, um, which is to decentralize um, in most of, and it comes back to leadership again, right? Like most of these organizations are led by people who get control of situations. They don't embrace emergence. They don't embrace decentralized control. Um, this is the vast majority of businesses in extant today. Um, 
And that has to change before we'll start to see the technology start to follow. But as the technology follows, I think what we'll see is that the data will start to be distributed. So, you know, I generate this data on Amazon. I'm just going to store it on S3. I generate this data in Google. I'm just going to store it there. Maybe that's how it goes, but maybe there's some other mediation layer that maybe manages metadata across different clouds and different different sources. And that's probably the first layer that will start to solve across them because it doesn't have the inertia problem, right? Where most data has the inertia problem, which is once it comes to rest somewhere, it's super expensive to move it somewhere else. And that's just always been a true, it's always going to be true. The networks will get faster, the storage will get bigger, and it'll still be true. Um, but the metadata is small and it's nimble. So I think that'll be where we'll first, to first start to see these changes in how we, we manage data and it'll start to change the, the systems around it too, is when we can have a, a single or fewer uh, metadata collections, um, that, that will start to hint at like, now I can start to put my storage anywhere and I know, and I can find it because that's the first problem to solve. We haven't even solved that problem yet, right? I think you've hinted at Emily is that the data is everywhere. Everybody's multi-cloud these days. Everybody's got a data center and some clouds or, or two clouds or all the clouds. Um, and so the problem is just growing and eventually something will emerge at the metadata layer and then the data layer will follow. Yeah, I think it's one of the challenges um, to sort of go along with that is that it's actually not, I kind of want to disagree. It's actually not that hard to move the data around. It's very expensive and very time consuming, but it's easy. You just need to have somebody that's willing to throw enough computing power at it. And the problem is that everyone is, nobody really knows when to push back on the data engineers. When they say, I need more computing power, we just say, okay, um, <laughs> here's a blank check. Tell me what you need. Uh, and eventually, especially this year, we've seen that um, the, the, the belts are tightening and people aren't willing, aren't as willing to, to um to sign those blank checks. And so I think that we are going to need something better with the tooling. But um, like, I'll just give a really concrete example. Um, the last time I worked with Airflow in detail, by the way, was about three years ago. I've, I've played with it since, but I haven't really done hardcore engineering with it. But back then, um, the version of Airflow I was using, it had a metadata store for managing the state of all of its pipelines. And that metadata store was mutable. So trying to do any sort of observability, monitoring anything, with any level of detail with the tool was sporty, let's just say. Um, it made it really difficult to try to um, to try to manage and monitor, right? And so if we're going to try to build like a more reliable data pipeline system, like we just the basic stuff of, you know, having good hooks for observability, having, making it easy to get your logs, making it easy to um, do identity management. I think all of that stuff would be a big step forward. And yet we're still struggling getting there um, from the tooling perspective. I don't know, Alex, maybe this is something that you've you've come across with some of, maybe not in the data space, but in other uh, sort of context. Not a new problem. I mean, like I've, I've, I've ran into this, I, I've been responsible for data processing pipelines several times, right? And uh, uh, often these have just been kind of uh, logs, right? But, you know, uh, still managing a humongous ELK stack that's uh, ingesting uh, something like 350,000 log lines per second. Um, you know, I've, I've, I figured out how to you know, measure that. It's just you've got to take the time and you got to build your own tools often, right? Like, as you mentioned, a lot of these systems don't often have the built-in 
uh, ability to expose the metrics that you might be able to easily get from other systems, right? Uh, uh, but it's absolutely possible. Like you can do it. Just got to spend the time, got to prove the business value to spend that time. And you just got to kind of sit down and, and, and maybe solve it yourself. So is, is that still the, I guess that's kind of where we, where we are is that there's, you know, we, we do have to like solve the problem ourselves. I've seen a lot of people who have done some really amazing stuff, some really clever stuff, um, with, with doing this, but it kind of goes back to like what we were saying earlier, right? It's not in the business interest that maybe not their, their first order, most immediate, like immediately visible interest to have people and investing time into, um, you know, roll your own tooling. It's more like the easier argument is here's a, here's a list of tickets, pick one and do it. I think there's another problem of privilege too, which is how do I put this? <laughs> which is like, some people can get away with like, Hey, I'm just going to go do this. Um, a lot of people in the data space or, um, just either don't believe they can or can't get away with that. Right. So like to say, you're right, Alex, like all three of us on this call can just prop could probably go disappear for a couple of days and solve a lot of these observability problems one at a time. But, but I think a lot of the listeners are in a case where they don't have that autonomy and, and ability to go do that. And so that's why I think it's important to talk about the systemic changes that need to happen that will enable them to have all of those basics. Like we've actually came all the way around to, to the kind of the three legs of the SRE tripod, as I call it, right? Like we just talked about observability and that, that that's the foundation, right? That everything needs. Um, and I don't mean to obscure the privilege point, but like coming back to the, another point, which is that you, you can't do the other parts of SRE until you have observability. It's just, you can't measure your reliability until you can observe the system. And you can't really do effective incident management. And Emily, you touched on this earlier with kind of the, the trouble ticket process for a lot of data engineering is more like solve the immediate problem, but don't look any deeper and go and fix systemic issues, which would bring you to the incident management kind of way of looking at things where we don't just stop at the most immediate cause. We keep going and go and figure out what's actually going on. Um, but we can't get to that if we can't see what's going on. Wasn't this how ops used to be? though like it still is yeah like i was gonna say though like the whole story that you know like amy's telling like i've lived through that from beginning to end right and you do need buy-in and you need leadership to to say yes spend the time to do this but it's not like it's impossible you know i've i've done that from the ground up right take a purely operational team that's almost like a knock setup with with tickets incoming and you answer the tickets and, you know, that's, that's, that's all you're doing, but you can move from that to a modern SRE style approach to, uh, uh, spend the time to truly understand your systems, measure them better, right. Report on them better, right. Leadership loves reports. Um, and you know, like you can take those steps, you know, iteratively over time and, and bring those concepts, I think to any team. And, and that's why I don't see, we can't, why we can't do it for data engineering teams. It might just take a while. I think I think it will. I think that's the I think that's the challenge, right? We're still. I think one of the challenges with bringing SRE theory to the data space um, is that we haven't even had the DevOps transformation, and and I don't know, like maybe I'm just being a little bit too simple, like maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I don't think that SRE. 
I don't know that SRE would be as successful as it has been if we did not have an awakening to more generic DevOps principles at a wider scale. Um, maybe that's a contentious statement amongst you two or amongst some people in the community. But I do think that there is, like, before you can get to the value-generating state of SRE, you need to have the like the fundamental state of you build it, you run it in your dev like in your software dev teams. Yes, and that's where a big divide comes in. I think where small orgs, startups, things like that don't typically have a lot of these problems. They typically don't even have a data team, right? It's like some Alex in the corner that's that's like just running the reports because you're a startup. You just do. Oh, I can do that. You take care of it. Once you get into the enterprise, um, the the shocking thing for a lot of SREs that have come out of the startup or the Google and the the megacorp world is that like the enterprise hasn't done any of this stuff. Like vast majority have are still sitting in the zero zeros. They're just now starting to pick up chef, right? Like that's where we're at. We're at we're at 15 years ago. What we considered state of the art as SREs is just now starting to filter into the enterprise, and I think that's part of what you're pointing at, Emily, is right. Like that, the evolution that made SRE possible. One, there was this kind of freak of nature that was Google, um, that that could do this ahead of the industry catching up to it. But and then these DevOps practices have. Everybody will talk about DevOps. You go into enterprise, they'll be like, "We do DevOps," and then you go look at their pipelines. You'd be like, "You're not doing DevOps, buddy." Like you're you you know you run your CI, but then like some other team is operating your code. Um, Here's our DevOps team. Yeah, right, right. We have a DevOps team that are basically just, we renamed our ops to DevOps and now, and we gave them some CI tools. And so now they're an SRE team, right? But we haven't done all these other things that make SRE valuable. And that's because, again, enterprise momentum um, over the, you know, just has this glacial and inevitable momentum. Once they, Once it starts becoming an IT shop, it's really hard to pull that lever and, and start to move towards it. I've been working on this for three years in my current gig. Well, like, let me jump in a little bit then and, and just say, like, you know, I'm not, again, disagreeing, but I don't know. I think we're further along in terms of the enterprise, quote unquote, the, the Fortune 500s, right? I think we're closer to seeing them understand and actually adopt some of this change in their IT organizations. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm on the optimistic side of this, I think is what I'm saying, you know, and, and right now, like the company I work at, we are, you know, a reliability platform. We help you better me measure SLOs. We help you better understand your systems and the kind of companies that are coming to us, they, I think fall into, in, into the category that you're mentioning, you know, and, and are they doing it all perfectly? Maybe not. Uh, um, are they often just blindly following the Google SRE book? Um, which we can go on a whole separate rant about the problems there. Uh, often, yes. But I guess my point is I'm seeing people try. I'm seeing people within these organizations say, I want this to be better. And they're and they're leading up and they're and they're trying and they are succeeding. You know? So I I I again I don't disagree with the points like that you're making. I just think we're closer to a positive tipping point in terms of organizations adopting these kind of practices, then we are away from it, right? Like, I think we're really there. We're right there. And it's not going to happen at every company. It's not going to be industry-wide. But, you know, I have I have faith in the IT departments of Fortune 500s. I think a lot of them are, are 
making real positive change. That's a very positive note. Perhaps we should uh, maybe wrap on the the upbeat note. I will say that um, I have seen particularly, excuse me, particularly in the last 18 months, I have seen a rather stark change towards the positive from a lot of enterprise. Um, being in Europe as I am, I think the culture is a little bit different. There is a little bit of a different mindset um, within the EU, and there's a lot of regulation that has to be dealt with that has typically made organizations gun shy of adopting certain changes. Um, I think in the last year, year and a half, it's been a, there's been a big shift, and one of the drivers of that shift has been GDPR. People are starting to realize that actually they can't keep doing what they're doing business as usual without a massive change in how they're operating their data teams because they simply have no way of uh, of dealing with the years, if not decades, of legacy that they built in with the same centralized model. And so they're looking for new uh, new ways to move forward. So maybe there's a little bit of a, of a catalyst there, but um, I do also, I, I do see both points. I see, Amy, I see your point where there's like, you know, Google had a good reason to develop the theory because that was crucial to their business. And if you're a, I don't know, insurance company, that's not crucial to your business. Um, but at the on the other side, I think that things are actually starting to change. I'd say that the catalyst isn't so much that these organizations are waking up. It's that the complexity of our systems, as you mentioned, Emily, is just overrunning centralized control, right? So it comes back to leadership again. Like they just trying to be like, I have control of everything, um, you know, it is. It just doesn't scale. And we've been as technologists, we've all been saying this for our whole careers. I'm betting both of you have said this to people. Like it doesn't scale. Like this isn't. This is slow. It's cumbersome. Why are we doing it this hard way? It, but if we are the tipping point that we're hitting, and this is what I'm seeing even in my own organization, is that our systems and our demands of our customers and our products and the whole system is so freaking complex. We passed the point a long time ago before when one person could keep it all in their head. Now we're at the point where even team cognition is struggling to keep up. And we haven't even gotten good at that yet. And so I think that's really the tip, tipping point that's happening is team cognition is starting to become the focus as opposed to like we put all the load on this one individual and we use them until we burn them out and we get a new one. Um, you put it on the team, you can start to grasp with this complexity, but you have to let go of control to get there. And so that's why it's slow and that's why it's kind of going to be lumpy over the next decade. I am... Um... I once with a client did an exercise where we actually looked quarter by quarter how many tickets their data engineering team could close or or were requested and how many they could close and then how many people there were. And the, the stark difference in the graphs, it was like the number of tickets that they could close stayed flat quarter by quarter. The number of people in the data engineering team was like a logistic curve. It like grew and then it started to flatten out and the number of tickets opened was growing like quadratically. And then like, this is showing you that this is like you're already past, like you've gone past the breaking point, and the more time that you spend here not changing, the worse this problem gets. And that's how you can prove business value of generating better approaches to segments of the organizations that may not have done so. And it, it, again, that's going to take time. You're going to have to convince people. Um, I've actually often found that numbers. Uh, are not as great of a tool as people think they are in terms of uh, convincing leadership that 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 change is required, but stories are actually much better. Um, people really 
uh, I think <laughs> like if you explain the pain that people feel, right, with all these incoming tickets, not being able to close them and 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 explain, but well, look, if we just spent time to, as Amy said, develop better observability, right? If we, you know, use a, a incident management approach to, to handling, you know, like this influx, you know, like whatever it might look like, if you can explain to people that, you know, your teams are miserable and, or they're leaving <laughs> because their jobs are, 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 you know, like are difficult. That's, that's often even better than like the number of tickets closed, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. Like I'm team optimism. Right. And, and, and I think most people, um, don't want their employees to suffer, right? Like maybe some do, uh, <laughs> and maybe some really are just looking at the numbers, right? Like just at the bottom line, but I don't know. I've had good luck going to people and telling stories and explaining this is why a change is needed. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And especially thank you to Alex and Amy for joining in this excellent and uh, very enlightening discussion. Thank you to Scott for uh, being our gracious host and giving us this forum. Uh, maybe one quick word of sign off, maybe one, uh, as you sign off and maybe just think of like one thing that you would like to see moving forward from the data space, uh, data and SRE working together, uh, more closely. Uh, my sign off as Amy Toby will be your observability has to come first. And then all these other lovely pract SRE practices become much more accessible. So work on your observability. That, and, you know, you need to understand your systems, but you also need to be able to change them. Like is the other thing, right? I think it's also like at the bedrock, right? Like once you have some observability, once you better understand what's going on with your systems, you also need to make sure they're able to bring change about to to use that observability data to make things better. And I just want to say it's always a pleasure. Uh, uh, like always loved uh, chatting with you, Emily and Amy. Thanks. And I'm Emily. And my sign off is trust your data people. Uh, they really want to do good work. And just give them the opportunity to show you what they can do. Thanks. I'd again like to thank the participants today. Emily Gorsinski, Head of Data and AI for ThoughtWorks Europe, guest of Episode 72, who facilitated a discussion with Amy Toby, Senior Principal Engineer at Equinix, and Alex Hidalgo, Principal Reliability Advocate at Noble9. You can find a link to their LinkedIn's in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Panels really are my favorite. And no, it's not just because I don't have to do the hard work. I, I swear, they give you a chance to hear from folks entirely devoid of my own views, which I think is crucial in our learning journey to figure out how to do data mesh well. Hopefully this one was super useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show. Almost all guests have said that they'd really love people to reach out. Data Mesh Radio is again provided by Data Mesh Understanding and is produced and usually hosted by, you know, except for these panels, by me, Scott Herleman. Do check out our website, datameshunderstanding.com, for more information. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by our offerings and some of the free programs out there. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And with that, let's hear that funky outro music. Mm -hmm.